The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Where we read the command, walk by means of the Spirit, and we are taking some time to go through various passages related to that. Remember the spiritual life, the life of the believer in the church age is a supernatural way of life, and therefore demands a supernatural means of execution. God the Father has so uh, decided and determined in this church age that there will be a unique witness by the church age believer in the angelic conflict in relation to the spiritual life. The more I study, the more I come to understand how significant this is. This last week when we had the prophecy conference, I hope that some of you caught a little bit from what Tommy was saying how much what we are doing today will determine who and what we are in eternity. That this is just a drop in the bucket compared to all of eternity. And this is boot camp. This is basic training. This is where we learn everything there is to know about living for the Lord in the midst of hostile circumstances. The things that we can learn in the midst of testing can only be learned in the midst of testing. And since when we are absent from the body and face to face with the Lord, we will be in a place where there is no sin, no testing. There will not be the opportunity to learn many of the things that we have today. And in the context of the angelic conflict, God has structured the church age as the highest uh, level of testimony and witness in the angelic conflict. And because of that, uh, and part, as part of that whole package, God has given us the Holy Spirit. There are, as we have studied, seven different salvation ministries of God, the Holy Spirit. And three of those relate specifically and are unique to the church age. And those are the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit, indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and the filling of the Holy Spirit. And there is a lot of controversy today about the nature of the filling of the Holy Spirit. There's also a lot of misunderstanding in relationship to uh, the uh, confession of sin in relation to the filling of the Holy Spirit. And so many of these issues are are interrelated that I'm taking the time to go through and try to understand what all the, of the dynamics are in the New Testament in relation to what it means to walk by means of the Spirit. We have seen that in Ephesians 5.8, we have the command that you are sons of light, therefore walk in light. That tells us that walking, this walk that we have, that is the metaphor for understanding the spiritual life, is related to God. It's related to fellowship with God. In 1 John 1.5 we read, and this is the message, we have heard from Him and announced to you that God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. Throughout Scripture there is this contrast between light and darkness. Light represents the absolute purity and holiness, absolute perfection of God's character, that He is perfect righteousness, that in Him there is no sin. Darkness represents sin. Verse 6, we have a first of three third-class conditions here. If we say we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Now, when we compare that particular verse back with Ephesians 5.8, which says that we are to walk as children, walk in the light. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light. Walk as children of light. That implies that we can, if we are mandated to walk in the light, and here the recognition that we can walk in darkness, we realize that there are two spheres, light and darkness. Another way that we represent this is in looking at the, the diagram where we use the bottom circle. The top circle represents our positional reality. This is, in essence, light. We are sons of light. 
But then there is our experiential reality, the experience of the believer in space-time history. When we are in fellowship, that is tantamount to walking in the light. Also, as we have seen, that means that we are we're walking in the sphere of light. That is an, a dative of sphere. And the means is by the Holy Spirit. So we stay in this sphere by walking by means of God the Holy Spirit. When we sin, Scripture says we grieve and we quench the Holy Spirit. He is in, in the, His ministry toward us as part of what we call the filling of the Holy Spirit. He is teaching us doctrine. He is reminding us of the doctrine that we have learned that is stored in our soul. And He is also leading and directing us uh, along with a number of other ministries. But He is also producing a transformed character. All of this is part of the filling of the Holy Spirit. But the filling of the Holy Spirit emphasizes the means, whereas uh, the means of the filling, which relates to uh, doctrine in our soul, whereas the walk emphasizes our moment-by-moment dependence upon the Holy Spirit. When we sin, we're out of fellowship, and we are in what the Bible calls carnality, which is the realm of darkness. So you see there is this division between light and darkness. There is not just a little bit of light and a little bit of darkness. You can't be both. Light and darkness are mutually exclusive. As soon as you are in a dark room, I don't know if you've ever been down in a deep cavern like uh, Mammoth Caverns or Carlsbad Caverns or anything like that, where usually at one point in one of those tours, the uh, park ranger will tell them to turn the lights off and you can't see your hand in front of your face. But if there's any level of light, you can see. So light and darkness are mutually exclusive domains. You're either in one or you're in the other. So John says, if we say that we have fellowship, and light can have fellowship only with light, righteousness can have fellowship, perfect righteousness can have fellowship only with perfect righteousness. John, would you turn this fan down a little bit? Once again, I do not need to have a hurricane blowing up here. If we say, now it's clicking, If we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Contrast, verse 7. But if we walk in the light, that is our day-to-day or moment-by-moment experience tantamount to walking by means of the Holy Spirit, if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, when I got into this the last time, I started breaking this down because this is some categories here that are very important for us to understand. And I want to make sure that through a little repetition, there is inculcation and we learn these distinctives because there is a lot of confusion going on today about this. The blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. And the word there for cleansing is the same word that we have down in 1 John 1.9, and it is the Greek word katharizo, K-A-T-H-A-R-I-Z-O. It means to cleanse, it means to purify, it is katharizo is the Greek word used to translate the Hebrew of the Old Testament and all of the ritual cleansing that took place in all the sacrifices in the uh, in the temple and tabernacle service. So it is a word that is rich with theological significance and has to do with removing the guilt of sin, either at the point of salvation or experientially from the life of the believer. 
one of the things that we must understand is that the sin of the sin of the unbeliever is dealt with in a different manner from the sin of the believer. They are related, of course. The unbeliever has his sins dealt with through faith alone in Christ alone. Jesus Christ went to the cross, and there He died spiritually as a substitute for the sins of the world. He who knew no sin was made sin for us. So the unbeliever has all of his sins, all pre-salvation sins, are all dealt with at the cross. But what happens after salvation when you sin again? Well, that now that you are a believer, you have to deal with post-salvation sins. Now, historically, there are several different ways in which this is treated. Number one, there is the Arminian solution. And the Arminian solution is that if you commit a post-salvation sin, or especially a more heinous sin, then you lose salvation, and you have to be saved again. That, of course, is heretical because it denies the doctrine of eternal security and basically ends up saying that man saves himself, and it's up to man to, by his own works or effort to keep himself saved. A second solution that is usually found in Reformed theology, also known as Calvinism, is the idea that 1 John 1.7 states the principle that the blood of Christ continually cleanses us from all sin because katharizo is a present tense. They emphasize that as being continuous action. And so you will find Reformed commentators looking at this verse and saying that the blood of Jesus Christ continually cleanses us from all sin. Now, not all Reformed theologians take 1 John 1.9 as a salvation verse, but many do. They think that you have to confess or admit that you're a sinner in order to be saved. And so they will look at 1 John 1.9 then as a, as a salvation verse. Now, one reason I'm getting into this is, number one, there are those in the... Number one, you need to learn this. It's important for your spiritual life. Number two, there are some pastors in doctrinal churches that have become very confused about this whole issue and subject of rebound, confession, 1 John 1, 9, and its relationship to the filling of the Holy Spirit. In fact when there is going to be at the National Teaching Pastors Conference next April, I have been asked to speak on this particular subject as I was about four years ago in Tulsa. This is several men have quit teaching this over the last few years and has sent shockwaves through several doctrinal churches. And there's just part of this is because there's just some men out there who can't think theologically anymore. And there's also a number of other questions. A good friend of mine whom we ordained down at Barack a couple of years ago and just graduated from seminary asked me a question, sent me an email question about three months ago, and he said, what is the connection between Ephesians 5.18, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and 1 John 1.9? How do we make that connection? Paul wrote Ephesians in roughly 52-53 A.D. Uh, Paul wrote it. First John is written probably to the church at Ephesus sometime near 85, between 85 and 90 A.D., and it's written by the Apostle John. In Ephesians, there doesn't seem to be any mention of confession. In First John 1, there doesn't seem to be any mention of the Holy Spirit. How do we make this connection? And because of that seeming discrepancy, many people have left the idea that there is a connection. And I demonstrated and have been demonstrating some of these connections because in Ephesians 5, it starts off back in verse 8 by talking about walking in the light. 
Light is synonymous with fellowship. What is the subject of 1 John 1? It is fellowship and walking in the light. That's where you draw your connection. They're talking about the same thing from different perspectives. And we will get into Ephesians 5 a little later on in this study and see how I think that confession is alluded to just in a few verses prior to Ephesians 5.18. But that's why we're getting into this. And then the, the, um, another reason we're getting into this is if I do manage to get to the point where I ever complete my doctoral dissertation, this is the subject of my doctoral dissertation, so I have to slug my way through an incredible number of commentaries and theologies and deal with a lot of minutia. So in the process, you might have to deal with a little along the way. So just call that grace an opportunity to exercise grace orientation on your part if I get too, too bogged down in the minutia. But Reformed Calvinism tends to look, and many others as well, because of the influence of this in the commentaries, tend, tends to take 1 John 1.7 as the standard, and then they have trouble with 1 John 1.9. Now, when we look at this, we have to understand that there are at least three categories of forgiveness in the Scriptures. See, forgiveness is going to be an issue here and in terms of cleansing from sin. That's the subject. And there's at least three categories of forgiveness in the Scriptures. The first two are related to God. And the third I would relate to other believers, forgiving one another just as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. So the third category has to do with forgiving other believers, and that's not the subject of this particular study. Now, the first two categories of forgiveness, we have to understand, because some people have raised the question, if we are forgiven at the cross, and Christ paid the penalty for our sins, how then can God penalize us for the same, again, a second time, for the same sin when we commit it in time. Now, let me see, that falls under the category of the law of double jeopardy. Isn't there being a double punishment for the same sin? Let me rephrase that. If you go out and you commit murder, Christ paid the penalty for that sin on the cross. And then if you have to suffer consequences or divine discipline for that murder, isn't that paying twice for the same sin? And that violates the law of double jeopardy. Where we fall into a problem there is what's called the fallacy of the middle term in logic. What that means is we're using the same term, penalty, in two different senses, two different ways. And when we use it in two different ways, it's a very subtle shift, we end up creating what appears to be a contradiction. We have to understand that there are two different penalties for sin. We'll call the first one P1. P1 has to do with eternal penalty, spiritual death. When God placed Adam and Isha in the garden, He had a tree. The tree was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And He said, you may eat from any tree in the garden, but of this tree you cannot eat. For the day in which you eat, you will certainly die. And used a particular construction in the Hebrew... Uh, a cal infinitive absolute plus the uh, finite verb which indicates certainty and absolute uh, surety. So they could count on the fact that it was a very emphatic form of saying at the instant you do this you will die. Now at the instant they ate, they did not die physically. So we have to ask the question, what kind of death was it? And there are several different kinds of death in the Scripture. All of them are the consequences of this primary death. And the primary penalty was spiritual death, which is defined as separation from God by the believer, the loss of the human spirit. That is what died. Man was originally created with three components. This is called trichotomy, which is just a long word for three parts. That means he has a physical body, a human soul, which is the real you composed of self-consciousness, mentality, emotion, volition, and conscious, 
and a human spirit, which is that aspect, that immaterial part of man, which gives us the ability to have a relationship with God and to understand spiritual phenomena. At the moment that Adam sinned, he lost that human spirit and he became spiritually dead. Now that spiritual death is penalty one, P1. When he died spiritually, there were consequences in space-time history. Some of those consequences are enumerated in the curse. The threefold, the curse on the serpent, he had to crawl. The curse on the woman, that she would have a desire to control her husband. And a curse on the man, that now his work would be done and it would be laborious and be by the sweat of the brow. And I think there's many other implications to all of that. There was also all of the creation suffered from the curse, according to Romans 8. The entire creation suffers and groans under the curse of sin, awaiting the the ultimate redemption, so that there were the plants grew thorns and thistles. It became difficult. It became a battle to pull sustenance out of the soil. The animal in the animal kingdom, many animals, all animals were originally created uh, gramnivorous. Many became carnivores, and now they're entered battle and, and problems and violence in the animal kingdom. All of this is a consequence of. Adam's original sin. Because of his spiritual death, the issue was how Adam responded to the test. And because Adam failed, because he was the representative of God over creation, this was man's domain, everything in man's domain was then affected by that, that, that decision. And that is what we will call P2. P2 is space-time consequences for sin. So see, all of a sudden now we realize there are two different categories of punishment for sin. There is category one, the eternal punishment of spiritual death, and P2, which is the temporal consequences of that sin. Now, when Jesus Christ went to the cross and died, He did not pay the consequences, the space-time consequences for our sin. He paid the penalty of spiritual death, which is the root issue of all, of all sin. So when we trust Christ as our Savior, here's your life from birth to the cross, the time you trust Christ as your Savior, until death, physical death when you're absent from the body and face-to-face with the Lord. Here you have pre-salvation sins, and here you have post-salvation sins. Jesus Christ paid the penalty, P1, for all sins in human history, all pre-salvation sins and all post-salvation sins. There is no single sin that anyone can commit that was not paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross. So that when you are saved, you are cleansed of all pre-salvation sins. But after salvation, five minutes later, when you lie or you have a mental attitude sin of lust, whatever it might be, you commit a sin, that sin is also covered. It's all cleansed. All post-salvation sins are cleansed. He won, and you don't have to worry about losing your salvation. This is what 1 John 1.7 is talking about. It is a reference to the fact that if we sin, the blood of Jesus His Son is continually cleansing us from all sin so that we never again have to worry about P1 penalty for sin. However, we still have to worry about P2 consequences because there are consequences for our sin. Number one, the first area is the law of volitional responsibility. Scripture says, whatsoever a man sows, this he will also reap. There are natural consequences to sin, whether mental attitude sin, sins of the tongue, 
or overt sins, they all have consequences. And the more we allow sin in our life, the more it has a negative effect upon our soul. It is destructive. So volitional responsibility just recognizes that there are natural consequences to sin. The second arena of consequence is an intensified form, which is the law of divine discipline. On top of the natural consequences to that sin, God may heap some divine discipline and intensify the discipline in order to bring us back to a position where we are going to recover from our sin through confession of sin and get back in line with God's plan and walk by means of the Holy Spirit. So P2 consequences have to be dealt with. A third level of P2 consequence is that it uh, it grieves, these sins grieve and quench the Holy Spirit and we lose fellowship with God. We are walking in darkness. So there has to be some mechanism for moving back from the realm of walking in darkness. Let's roll this back here. There has to be some way of moving from darkness back into light. See, this is the thing that is lost in the way many, many people who reject confession as a means of the filling of the Holy Spirit, this is where it falls apart. They do not have any means of recovery. They think it's just automatically going to happen, or they say, well, there's just some sort of nebulous faith in the Holy Spirit that it's automatically going to happen. But the reason you move from light to darkness is because of your volition, and you have to engage your volition to recover. And there must be some sense of recovery there. And the basis, of course, is still the fact that those sins were paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross. And when you uh, acknowledge and admit those sins to God, in essence, what you are saying is that I committed these various acts, Lord, and I recognize that Jesus Christ paid for those on the cross, and therefore, because they are paid, I can, have a re- I can recover fellowship with you and continue to walk by means of the Holy Spirit. Now, that doesn't mean you say all of that, but that is the dynamic, that's the framework in which this takes place. That's the basis for confession. It is basically a recognition that those sins are paid for, and you admit them to the Lord, and you are forgiven because of the work that Christ did on the cross. Now, the other thing that we will see as we go further into this study in Galatians chapter 5 is that, we can, that the sin nature, the flesh, our natural ability produces certain works. The Holy Spirit also has certain production and fruit in our lives. We can, in the power of the flesh, also produce what I call pseudo-works, human good. It looks like divine good and masquerades as divine good. If you do not have a mechanism, a means of moving from walking by walking in the darkness to walking in the light, how do you ascertain whether or not you are walking by the Spirit or walking in the flesh? There has to be some means for determining the realm in which you're walking and how you recover. 1 John 1.9 supplies that. Just because you confess your sins and you move back into the sphere of light doesn't mean you're going anywhere. It just puts you back in a position where you can go somewhere. Confession doesn't move you anywhere other than back into the sphere of light. It is from that point on that the issue is determined. You have to continue walking by means of the Holy Spirit. So all 1 John 1.9 is, is a grace recovery procedure to put you in a position to go forward. Now you have to start making moment-by-moment decisions to go forward by walking by means of God the Holy Spirit. So 1 John 1.7 indicates the, what takes place in terms of the continual cleansing from sin that we don't lose our salvation because the penalty was completely paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross. So, 
In summary, we said last time the subjunctive mood here in uh, 1 John 1.7, if we walk, is the mood of potentiality. We may or may not walk in the light. Point number two, walking in the light is experiential sanctification. Point number three, walking in the light is not equivalent to being a believer. That's one thing that that, uh, some people will say when they come to this passage, typical of Reformed theologians, is that walking in the darkness is an unbeliever. Walking in the light is a believer. Now, this is a crucial issue. I find it fascinating that how people tend to always line up on the same sides of different issues because of their theological framework. Reformed theologians always end up making 1 John 1.9 indicate tests, what we'll call tests of life. That these contrasts are all between, throughout the entire epistle of John, all between believer and unbeliever. The interesting thing is that that has tremendous implications because of the way you then take many passages in 1 John on the whole lordship salvation issue. So that those who hold to lordship salvation, almost all, almost to a man, take this reformed view of 1 John that it's tests of life. On the other hand, those who believe in what we call the free grace position, that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone, see 1 John as demonstrating tests of fellowship that the contrast isn't between unbeliever and believer, but between the carnal believer and the spiritual believer. And this is the issue here. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we've already established from other passages, notably Ephesians 5.8 and others, that you can walk in darkness as a believer. You continue to commit sin, and that's walking in darkness. Positionally, you are sons of light. That's our title. That's our position. Yet we can walk in darkness rather than in light. So we are mandated to walk in the light because Jesus himself is in the light. So this is not talking about walking in the light. It's not a term to describe a believer, but is a term for describing a believer who is walking by means of the Holy Spirit and advancing in the spiritual life. So, point number four, walking in the light is tantamount or equivalent to walking by means of the Spirit, having a life that is temporarily free from sin because of experiential righteousness in the life of the believer, because he is walking by means of the Holy Spirit. The result is fellowship with God and with other believers. Now, 1 John 1.8. If we say that we have no sin, that is, if we are in self-deception and denial, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. In other words, as a believer, you have succumbed to arrogance, and you are denying sin, that there is even sin in your life. In contrast to the carnal believer who denies sin, there is the advancing believer who confesses sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful That is, God is faithful. He always does the same thing every time. And righteous, He is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, if the blood of Jesus Christ continually cleanses us from sin, why then ought we confess in verse 9? This is the problem. If you're going to emphasize verse 7 so highly then verse 9 not only becomes redundant, it becomes unnecessary. If Christ automatically cleanses, Christ's death on the cross for you as a believer automatically cleanses you from all sin, why then, in two verses later, does John say we ought to confess our sins? You see the contradiction there. Those who emphasize verse 7 fail to understand that we're talking about two different categories of penalty and two different categories of cleansing. One is positional and the other is experiential. That is why we have to admit or acknowledge our sins is so that there will be cleansing 
in time for the space-time consequences of sin. Now, let's have a summary of where we've gone so far in our study of walking because we've spent about four or five hours on this and I don't want you to lose the forest because we're spending so much time looking at the trees. I find one of the problems in many uh, doctrinal churches where we emphasize exegesis and we emphasize analysis of the text is we spend so much time looking at the details of the verse that we lose the big picture. The other thing that happens is that when somebody comes in and starts giving you the big picture, I find that I hear, I haven't heard this here, I'm not talking about this congregation, but I hear people say, well, that was really pretty basic. Overviews are not basic. I've been around a lot of believers who've been in churches who've had detailed analysis all their lives, and they can't give you the structure of Romans. They can't give you the overview of the Bible. They don't understand the Old Testament, but they know a lot of detail. But they don't understand the big picture. You have to do both. You have to do analysis and synthesis. You have to put it all together and see the big picture. So I want to keep going back and forth in this study so we don't lose the overall perspective of where we're going here. Because the bottom line is we have to understand how to walk by means of the Spirit. So point one in summary, walking in the light refers to the Christian living his life in fellowship with God. Walking in the light refers to the Christian living his life in fellowship with God. Point number two, just as the darkness is incompatible with light, so sin, whether overt, mental, or verbal, is incompatible with fellowship with God. What the righteousness of God rejects, the justice of God condemns. So, if walking in the light refers to the Christian living his life in fellowship with God, and if darkness is incompatible with light, and sin is going to move us from light into darkness, then point three, when we sin... We quit walking in the light and we begin walking in darkness. Any sin, a good sin, a bad sin, a heinous sin, a light sin, a venial sin, a mortal sin, a deadly sin, a criminal sin, it doesn't matter. In the Bible, you only have sin. There are no distinctions between one sin and another. So any sin, no matter how small or how big, remember all it took to plunge the human race into depravity was eating a piece of fruit. So any sin, whatever it is, is an act of disobedience to God, violates His righteous character, and thus separates us from fellowship. So when we sin, we quit walking in the light and begin walking in darkness. Point four, walking in darkness is an absolute that is compared to other absolutes in Ephesians 5. Walking in darkness is an absolute. There are other absolutes in Ephesians 5 that we looked at, foolish versus wise, drunk versus filled with the Spirit. This indicates that these are not processes, but absolutes. Point number five, the command to be filled with the, filled with the Spirit in Ephesians 5.18 is tantamount to the mandate to walk by means of the Spirit. They are related. They both relate to walking by means of the light. The command to be filled with the Spirit is tantamount to the mandate to walk by means, walk in the light and to walk by means of the Spirit. Point number six, the continuous light metaphor in Ephesians 5 and in 1 John 1, shows the connection between fellowship with God and the filling of the Holy Spirit. That's important. The context of Ephesians 5 is walking in the light. The context in 1 John 1 is walking in the light. Both passages recognize that you can move outside the light. And In Ephesians 5, you're focusing on one aspect, which is the mandate to be filled by means of the Spirit. And in 1 John, John is addressing a different issue, so John mentions confession of sin. 
Now, when you put these together, you realize that the similarities are, are there in many different points. What's different is the command to be filled with the Spirit and the principle of confession of sin. Therefore, you, you then are able to put those two together as being related. Confession is the means of recovery for the filling of the Spirit. And that's point number seven, the conclusion. This is the recovery from darkness is through the use of 1 John 1, 9, which restores the filling of the Holy Spirit. Now that brings us to the doctrine of the filling of the Holy Spirit. And this is really just by way of an introduction. I have three rather extended points that we need to look at in terms of understanding the mandate to be filled by means of the Spirit. So let's turn to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. Ephesians 5, verse 18. Now one thing that has impressed itself upon me in this study is the only place in the Scriptures, of course God only needs to mandate something once, and that's sufficient. But the only place that really emphasizes this is Ephesians 5.18. That's the only place where you have the mandate. Now, some people say, well, if it's in only one place, then it must not be that important. Well, the concept is expressed elsewhere, but the emphasis is not the filling by means of the Spirit so much as it's walking by means of the Spirit. Filling of the Spirit is a means Walking by means of the Spirit is the continuous process. That's why there's more of an emphasis on walking in the Scriptures than more mandates on the filling. But that does not negate the importance of filling. But first we have to exegete the passage a little bit to understand what's happening here. Ephesians 5.18 says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation but be filled with the Spirit. Now, there are some things here we need to look at in the Greek in order to make sure we have an accurate translation because you cannot have an accurate application if you do not have accurate interpretation. And you cannot have accurate interpretation if you do not have an accurate understanding of what the original text says. So it, it, there's a parallel drawn here, an analogy that is drawn between being drunk, and being filled. We have to understand the nature of that analogy. So the first verb is the negation of a command, a present passive imperative of methusko. Methusko means to get drunk. M-E-T-H-U-S-K-O. Now, it is a present tense Passive voice, imperative mood. It is an, with the negative, it is an imperative of prohibition, and this indicates, because it is in the present tense, that this is a complete prohibition for the entire life of the believer. So we have the prohibition, do not get drunk, and then that is followed by the dative of means for the word for wine, Oino. O-I-N-O. That's why someone who studies wine and has a habit, has a hobby of, of, of learning wine and all the differences in wine and all the fine nuances of flavor in wine is called an oinologist. Someone who studies wine. So, the dative indicates means. So the command is do not get drunk by means of wine. For that is dissipation. In other words, that is that see, we just got through reading we, he just got through saying that man is to redeem the time back in verse seventeen. This is the or uh, verse um, 16, New American Standards is making the most. The word is buying back. It's redeemed the time. And dissipation is wastefulness, wasting your life, wasting your time. Don't get drunk by means of wine. Now, 
In contrast, you have a second command, and that is indicated by the strong adversative Allah, which indicates a strong contrast between the two statements, but be filled. Now you have the positive command, also a present passive imperative. The present imperative indicates a general or standard rule for the believer's life. Present imperative indicates that this is supposed to be standard operating procedure in the believer's life. Whenever you have a present imperative, it emphasizes standard operating procedure. And it is the word that comes from the noun, or the, excuse me, the verb, plerao. P-L-E-R-O-O. And that emphasizes uh, to fill something up. Now, the question needs to be asked, what are you filled up with? And this is where we have to understand a little bit about the history of interpretation of this passage. Because there has been a lot of confusion about this. And we are told to be filled up with the Spirit. Now, it seems like in the English that the content of the filling is the Spirit. Just as I might take my coffee cup and fill it up with coffee, I would you would say, fill this with coffee. Well, what you're indicating in English is that the content of the filling is coffee. It's not what this is saying. It's a bad translation. In, in the Greek, you use the genitive to indicate Dative to indicate means. Just if you said do not get filled or drunk with wine, it doesn't say do not get drunk. It's not talking about the content. It's talking about the means, the method used to get drunk. Here it is talking about being filled by means of, it's an instrumental dative, by means of the Holy Spirit. Well, what are you filled with? We don't have time to look at it now, but in Colossians 3.16 you have the command, let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. Now, if you compare Ephesians 5 and 6 with Colossians 3 and what comes after that command in Colossians 3 and go on into Colossians 4, they're the same consequences. It talks about gratitude. It talks about uh, singing hymns and psalms and spiritual songs. It talks about uh, the uh, marriage Mandates, wives being submissive to your husbands, husbands loving your wives, children obeying your parents. All of these consequences flow from both mandates. So what we have in Ephesians is the emphasis on the means of filling, and in Colossians the emphasis is on the content of the filling, which is Bible doctrine. So let's make some observations here. First observation. Both verbs are present passive imperatives, indicating that the believer is acted upon by that which is in the dative. The, pre, the passive voice indicates that the believer is the recipient of the action. So he is acted upon by that which is in the dative. In the first case, he's acted upon by wine, and he's made drunk. In the second place, he's acted upon by the Holy Spirit, and he's filled up with something. The imperative mood emphasizes that this is a command or a mandate. The imperative is always addressed to the volition of the individual. That means that your volition is engaged. It is up to you as to whether or not you will implement the mandate, whether or not you will be filled, and whether or not you will avoid being drunk. It's up to you. Now, B. In the past, in terms of the history of the interpretation of this passage, drunkenness has been taken as the key issue in the metaphor. Obviously, we're dealing with an analogy here, and drunkenness has been taken as the key issue, and the emphasis has been then on the idea of control, that when you drink wine and you get drunk, it is the wine controlling you, so... The, the analogy would then mean that the Holy Spirit is supposed to control you. Now, what's wrong with that? Well, recent studies in the religious practices common in Ephesus at the time, 
reveal that one of the very popular cults in Ephesus at the time was the worship of the god Dionysius, also known by the Latin name Bacchus. Now, Dionysius was, among other things, the god of wine. And his worship was very much associated with what came to be called the mystery religions at that time. And in fact, a study of the mystery religions is important, very important for understanding a lot of the problems, uh, the background for the epistle to the Corinthians, the first epistle to the Corinthians, and why they were speaking in tongues. Because what would happen is that, that in the worship of Dionysius, you would go up into your your various groves up outside of town where you had altars set up, and you would have these orgies. You would have these tremendous parties, and because Dionysius was the god of wine, you would then participate in his particular um, benefit, and you would drink enormous amounts of wine so that you could get drunk, get into some kind of an altered state of consciousness so that you could have communion or fellowship with the god, and if you really got lucky then the God would speak to you in glossolalia. See, that's the background for Corinth as well. It happened also with the worship of Apollo. And they would go up to, to Delphi where there was the oracle of Delphi and they would get engaged in the same kind of thing where they would get drunk, they would have uh, these, these wild dances and they would then fall down in an ecstatic trance and begin to speak in, in glossolalia or just, just gibberish, but they identified that as the God speaking through them. Well, if that's your background, and then you come into, into the church, and all of a sudden somebody stands up in the back of the room, and you can't understand anything they say, and they start speaking in a foreign language that you're ignorant of, you're going to think it's the same thing you've been experiencing all your life up on the hillside worshiping Dionysius. And that's, the problem, that's what the Corinthians did, is they were confusing the pagan mystical worship of speaking in glossolalia with this miraculous ability to speak in a legitimate human language as a result, uh, as, a, as a special spiritual gift. Well, in Ephesus, they had the same kind of problem. They were thinking that the means to become spiritual and to have fellowship with God was by getting drunk because that's what you did in your, in your bacchanals. You went out and you got drunk and that would elevate your consciousness and, the God, and you would have greater uh, fellowship with God. So in terms of their religious background, they were using wine in order to have a deeper fellowship with God. And so what is Paul saying here? He's saying don't get drunk with wine because that's not going to get you in fellowship with God, but be filled by means of the Spirit because that's what gets you in fellowship with God. You understand the point? You have to do some good isagogics here and understand the culture of the time in order to correctly interpret the passage so you don't misinterpret and then misapply. Because this has been one of the great problems is when you utilize this term control, it indicates that somehow your volition is negated, you become somewhat passive, and now the Holy Spirit is going to live the spiritual life for you. Let go and let God. And that's one of the common phrases that came out of the higher life movement, the victorious life movement. And in the history of the doctrine, you see, you had people like Lewis Berry Chaper, C.I. Schofield, Arno C. Gabeline, some of the greats at the end of the 19th century who were tremendous dispensationalists, but they also associated with people like Reuben A. Torrey, uh, Dwight Moody was very much into Keswick, Higher Life Teaching, and some others. And they spoke at a lot of the same conferences together. And so people like Schofield and Gabeline and Schaefer and others picked up the same vocabulary, but they meant something different by it. That was one reason that they were criticized by the way they handled Ephesians 5.18. So now we're trying to solve this problem and we X out the concept of control, and what we're going to in emphasize is the idea of influence. Remember, let's look at the analogy. We go back to Ephesians 5.16. We realize that what the mandate is, is to walk by means of the Spirit, and you will not 
fulfill, bring to completion the lust of the flesh. So there's the contrast. The Holy Spirit versus the sin nature. Now, how does the sin nature operate? Sin nature is the source of temptation. The sin nature tempts your volition. When you operate positive to the sin nature, which is negative to God, then volition becomes the source of sin. The Holy Spirit is filling you with doctrine. He is continually bringing to your mind the doctrine that you need to apply in terms of reminding you, in terms of recall of doctrine for the situation, and you can exercise positive volition and respond to the Holy Spirit. As long as you are responding positively and applying doctrine in your life and saying no to the sin nature, then you are walking by means of the Holy Spirit. As long as you are in fellowship with God and when you are learning the Word of God, then the Holy Spirit is going to be filling you with doctrine. Filling up your soul with doctrine, making it understandable so that there is something there for Him to bring to your mind at the proper time. Now, all of that helps us to understand what is meant by the filling of the Holy Spirit. So our conclusion is that the filling of the Holy Spirit means to be filled by means of the Holy Spirit and is the means to fellowship and spirituality. Point number two, which I've already alluded to, in earlier writings by various theologians, Chafer is one, I've read this in many others, who failed to understand the original languages, they made an argument for repeated fillings. They said, okay, Ephesians 5.18 says to be filled with the Spirit. Now let's go to Acts. In Acts we find that some people are filled over and over and over again. So obviously you can lose the filling of the Spirit and you have to recover it. Now, the imperative mood of Ephesians 5.18 indicates that you can lose it. When you have an imperative, you're either going to obey it or disobey it, one or the other. If you're obeying it, you've got it. If you're disobeying, you don't. So the imperative, by nature of its significance, indicates that you can lose the filling of the Holy Spirit. So let me impress that upon you. Because nowhere in Acts does it indicate that you can lose the filling of the Holy Spirit. The reason is, the word that is used in all of these passages is the word pimplami, and the word that is used in Ephesians 5.18 is plerao. Two different words. They are not synonymous. Let's look at the usages. You can just chat, write these down, jot these references down. Let's look and see how these are used. For example, Luke 1.15 in reference to John the Baptist. This was the announcement by the angel to his father Zechariah that his wife Elizabeth would become pregnant and they would have a child. The angel said, For he, that is John the Baptist, will be great in the sight of the Lord and he will drink no wine or liquor. That is, he would have a, uh, a Nazarene, Nazarite vow. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Not plerao, folks. That is pimplami. What dispensation is John the Baptist living in? He's living in the dispensation of Israel. And later the dispensation of the Messiah. But he is not living in the church age where you have the unique filling of the Holy Spirit, plerao. It's pimplami. He will be filled with, by means of the Holy Spirit, pimplami. Luke one forty one. And it came about that when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb. Now, that does not mean that there was a soul there. I don't want to get caught up in the origin of human life issue. Uh, that means that in terms of Elizabeth's excitement, there were a lot of other dynamics going on that affected the physical life in the womb. And Elizabeth, it says, was filled by means of the Holy Spirit, and then she speaks... Luke 167. Incidentally, on the whole origin of human life, I ran across a very interesting website not too long ago that had a halakha. That's a rabbinic discussion back and forth, uh, and it had and it was rabbis from the uh, time of Christ, and they were arguing back and forth over the same issue. Many rabbis felt like, in fact, they structured the law. One of the interesting things in this is that uh, legal issues on uh, uh, 
inheritance rights were such that if a man died without if a man died and his wife was pregnant, as far as his estate was concerned, he was childless. They were not treating the life in the womb as full legal life. And that's Jewish interpretation. That's just an aside. Okay, Luke one sixty seven. And his father Zacharias was filled with the Spirit, complain me again, and prophesied. Acts 2.4, And they, that is, all the disciples, were all filled with the Spirit, that's been playing me, and began to what? Speak with other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. Acts 4.8, Then Peter, filled, been me, with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Notice, there's, there's a relationship between filling and speaking, been me and speaking. It has a revelatory significance. I would say that been me has more in common with the Old Testament temporary endowment than it does with New Testament filling. Because it's temporary and it's exclusively related to some kind of verbal utterance. Just as the prophets in the Old Testament were filled with the Spirit in order to write the Scriptures. That's what it relates to. So that it doesn't have anything to do with the issue of the living the spiritual life as outlined in Ephesians 5.18. So, Pimplemi is not the issue... Plerao is. And then a third point here in terms of introduction to the filling of the Spirit is that there is a failure to distinguish between the verb plerao and the related adjective plerex. P-L-E-R-E-S. Plerex. Now, plerex is an adjective and as such is descriptive. Plerex plus a genitive of description is going to give us a character analysis of a person. Now, I know somebody who says that the play race, that in these verses, this shows that filling is a process. Well, let's just look at one of these, and I'll show you how it works. Acts 13.10 is a description of... Uh, one of the various characters who are in opposition to the apostles in Acts. Acts 13, verse, verse 10. This is Elymas the magician, and he wants to have the power that Paul has. And Paul says to him in verse 10, You who are full of all deceit and fraud. This is the word play race. You are full of deceit and fraud. This is a character description of Elymas. He has a deceitful, fraudulent character. Another example of this is found in Acts 9.36. Now in Joppa, that's modern-day Haifa, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha. This woman was abounding with, and the New American Standard translates this poorly, was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity. Literally, it is play race full Full of, full of good works and mercy. That's the literal translation. It is play race plus ergon agathon, which is good works, and elimasune, which is mercy. So she's full of good works and mercy. But this is a character description of the woman. She is characterized by good works and mercy. This characterizes her life. Now, I use those descriptions because they're, they're not related to the Holy Spirit at all. In Acts 6.3, they're going to choose the deacons, the first proto-deacons, really, in Acts 6.3. And there we read the apostles saying, "...but select from among you, brethren, seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom." Here it's play race again. Full of the Spirit and wisdom. He's not talking about plerao, that these men are filled with the Spirit. Number one, it is real obvious from the passage that if you're, you're, you're going to choose these men, you're not going to choose men who are at this moment filled with the Spirit and the next moment not. Secondly, you are not filled with the wisdom one moment and not filled with wisdom the next. That is clearly an adjectival description of somebody whose whole life is characterized by the Holy Spirit and wisdom. So play race 
is different from pleiro. Pleiro is the means of filling. Play race describes the ultimate mature results of filling. So what we would say is that the reason they are full of the Spirit and wisdom is because these men have grown to spiritual maturity and they are, have spent maximum amount of time being filled with doctrine under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit and it is exemplified in their life. This is then said of Stephen in Acts 6, 8, that Stephen was full of grace and power. So that describes his life. He's grace-oriented and he relies upon God the Holy Spirit. Acts 11.24 says, For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. So play race is different from play rao. Play race indicates the character quality, the character results of play rao. You see, the Bible is saying the character matters. And the ultimate goal is not to be filled with the Spirit. It's not to be in fellowship. It is to advance to spiritual maturity and exemplify the character of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to see in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is the play race. It is the, it is the character that is produced in the believer as a result of continuous filling by means of God the Holy Spirit. So the conclusion is that Pimplemi relates to the pre-church age endowment of the Holy Spirit for special revelation. Plerao relates to the work of the Holy Spirit in filling the believer with doctrine. The content of the filling is always doctrine and the result is expressed by play race and that is Christ-like character. So there we see, through looking at these different uses of the verb, the entire process from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity. The means is the Holy Spirit filling you with doctrine. The process is continuous walking. And the result is transformed character expressed by play race with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank You for the opportunity to look at these things today, to understand that the spiritual life is uniquely driven, empowered by God the Holy Spirit who helps us to understand the things of Your Word, reminds them of us, reminds us of them, and recalls them to our mind so that we can apply them in times of testing and thereby advance to spiritual maturity and exemplify the character of Christ. Father, we pray that we might be challenged by the things that we have studied this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen.